Good evening. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We are in the middle of a series through the book of Ecclesiastes called Meaning in the Madness. And in this book, the teacher, Solomon, is showing us how to find true meaning in life. And there's a lot of ways that we try to seek for meaning in life. There's a lot of things that we pour ourselves into, a lot of things that we pursue, a lot of things that we try to accomplish, believing that these things are going to bring us satisfaction. And over and over and over, what Solomon does in this book is he shows us that those things are vanity or meaningless, or the word that we decided to use every time we say vanity, bubbles. That's right. Bubbles, bubbles. All is bubbles. A bubble that you blow is something that's very quickly gone. You can't grab onto it. It's fleeting. It's transient. It's never the same way twice. It's hard to figure out. And so Solomon is using this analogy to show us that all of these things that we try to find meaning in are like those bubbles. Here, right now, and gone tomorrow. But what God has done is he's put eternity in our hearts. He has shown us how to find the beauty in the bubbles. And as we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, it can sound very fatalistic. It can sound nihilistic. It can sound like uh, Solomon is, is totally negative. He's the Debbie Downer of the party. But that's not really what's going on. Solomon, as we talked about, is deconstructing for us all of the methods that we have of trying to find meaning outside of God. He's like a, a gardener who's pruning away all of the bad theology and bad thinking that's leading us astray. That, that seems like it's good, but really is accomplishing nothing for us. And so today, Solomon is going to deconstruct yet another way that we try to find meaning outside of God. But it's kind of unexpected, because the one that he's going to start with in chapter 5 is religion. Now that doesn't seem to be something that's outside of God. The opposite. If anything, it would seem that finding meaning in religion would be the one thing that the Bible supports most, right? But if that were the case, well then the Pharisees wouldn't have been Jesus' main enemies. Jesus was harder on the Pharisees than he was on anybody else. And the Pharisees were the most religious people in all of the ancient world. They had religion down to a science. And yet, they were missing the heart of God's desire for us. And that's why religion can't be something that we try to find our meaning in. The truth of the matter is that Satan has many ways of drawing people away from God. Immorality, selfish living, there's a world that is filled with temptation. But perhaps the most effective tool that Satan has in his arsenal is actually religion. Because when people are religious, they believe themselves to be right with God. That's why it is such a subtle, effective method of deception. Because religion tells us, just perform these rituals, just pray these prayers, offer these offerings, and God will accept you. And believing that, people are led astray in droves. Their hearts remain unchanged. Their sin remains unrepentant. But they believe that they are just fine. They even believe that their rituals are making a difference. If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about placebo buttons. And if you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go back into the, the podcast or the catalog on Facebook. Um, and, and Solomon was talking about ways that we try to accomplish something effective, but we're really just pushing a placebo button. We, we believe that we're doing something worthwhile, but we're actually not accomplishing anything. And so Solomon is going to revisit and repackage that same idea of the placebo button in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In March 2014, San Juan Batista, California was in the midst of a drought, a long drought. Officially, they were in their third year 
of a drought. Now, that doesn't mean that there was no rain whatsoever in the period of three years, just not enough rain to make any kind of a difference. Crops were dying, cattle was being sold off uh, to places far away because it wasn't able to survive there in San Juan Batista. Farms were shutting down, farmers were losing their livelihoods. It was a bad situation. But San Juan Batista, California had an ace up their sleeve. And that was a resident named Lainey Reyna, or as she had been named by a shaman decades earlier, she who makes things happen. Standing in the middle of the bank one day in the lobby, Lainey raised her arms, channeling a great spirit, and she exclaimed to everyone in the bank, Everyone in this town has got to come together and pray and dance for rain, and we've got to do it now. Um, Instead of pushing the red button, as I would have, one of the tellers rushed over and said, can you really do this? I'll start spreading the word. And so, that following Sunday, Raina led a group of 75 people, which included the mayor and a priest, in an intertribal rain dance. She led the dancers in a clockwise direction, saying that doing so attracts low-pressure systems. She spoke as she danced, We know it is our disrespect for Mother Earth that brings this drought. We humble ourselves. We call out for rain. Then they started to dance counterclockwise, to make sure that there wasn't too much rain causing landslides, just to be safe. The rain, however, did not come. So, Raina doubled down. She determined that the reason that there wasn't any rain is because she hadn't led a true rain dance, because she didn't know the steps to an actual rain dance. So, she sent a message to a friend whose mother had passed down to her the old language and customs of her native tribe. And this friend taught Raina the steps. So the following week, Raina and her group did another rain dance. And this time, it started to drizzle. This friend said, In the moment when the dance begins, when the intent is pure, there is power in collective energy. Raina then contacted her ex-husband, Chief Sane. He helped her organize another rain dance the following week, saying, Magic has never left this place. We're the ones who forgot. We should be aware and celebrate the magic of nature all the time. Use the power you were born with to dance and pray. And so this time, aided by steps that Raina had learned on a video chat... She was greeted by the first measurable precipitation in weeks. During the dance, she passed out water bottles and told the people to spit water out into the air as they danced because water attracts water. We are they who are calling the rain, she said. We are true to where we stand on our mother earth. We dance for you. Rain, awaken, thunder. And the crowd chanted, Amani, 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 which means rain, rain, rain. Now, interestingly enough, at this time, Raina was not the only person to be leading rain dances. That same month, tribes in San Diego and Santa Barbara also held community rain dances. Some tribes here in the Midwest even reported that they had been offered money to travel to California to perform rain dances there. There were even a group of Buddhists that performed a rain dance in the Los Angeles National Forest, and they even published in one of their American Buddhist journals tips for doing rain dances correctly. Things like make sure you dance on a flat surface, never on a slope. Apparently, dancing on a slope screws things up. Just FYI, if you're ever interested in doing one. And do you know what happened? Well, at some point, it rained. But was it because of she who makes things happen? 
Or was it because of some meteorological inevitability? Did the rain spirits respond to rituals being performed? Or was it because systems that were already set up worked the way they were designed to work and water fell when it was supposed to fall? I would submit to you that this provides us an apt picture of many of the rituals that are performed by people in the Christian and Catholic church. We might scoff at the idea of doing a rain dance, and we might think that that is not something effectual because we don't believe in rain spirits. But many people believe that God wants us to perform similar rituals in order to receive his blessings. Pray this particular prayer this many times in this many ways. Offer this particular offering. Do these commands and the skies will open and blessings will rain out upon you. We also believe that if we accrue enough resources, we will be secure and safe. And so much of our effort in life to be satisfied is built upon what we're giving in terms of ritual and what we're accruing and possessing. But Solomon is going to teach us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 that true satisfaction actually comes from receiving. And no amount of rain dances and no amount of additions to the bottom line will ever bring us the joy that we desire. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is bubbles. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what, had, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little Or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink And find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life 
because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So, in this chapter, Solomon discusses and breaks down for us what he calls the grievous evil of empty religious ritual and hoarded wealth. Now, over and over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has used the Hebrew word hevel, bubbles, vanity. Here he adds a brand new term that is found nowhere else but in chapters 5 and 6 in the entire Bible. And that is a grievous evil. He uses this term to describe this hoarded wealth and this empty religious ritual. So this is more than just something that's fleeting. This is more than just something that doesn't bring us happiness. He says this is grievous evil. It is wrong. It is pain that is actually bad. This is not good. A lot of the things that Solomon has discussed so far can be very good things that we make into God things. Gifts that we worship instead of the giver. But this, he says, is just flat out bad. Hoarding wealth. Now it's not an accident that Solomon addresses God and money in the same chapter. These two are not random. This is not a disconnected sort of a thing. The Bible speaks so often about money because it is the easiest substitute for God that exists in the world. Because in money we can find or seek rather security, safety, happiness, worth. And it's the easiest idol that we have to make because it's ever-present and because we actually need it. Like it or not, we live in a world where you actually have to have money or you can't function, right? We, we need a place to live. We need food to eat. So money is required for that. And we spend so many of our hours in a week earning it. But that means it's easy to lose sight of what it really is. It's, it's a resource instead of making it what it isn't, and that is a religion. And it's one of the great ironies of history that we put the phrase, in God we trust, printed on our money. Because far too often, it's the other way around. It is not in God that we trust. Far too often, it is in the money that we trust. So, Solomon discusses these two things, religious ritual and hoarded wealth. And what he's going to show us is that these two connected things are ways that we try to find meaning outside of God. These are, these are two ways that we, by our own effort, try to achieve a life of joy for ourselves. Both of these things are based on what I can gain for myself. What I can do for myself. I can perform the rituals correctly and I can gain enough on the bottom line and I'll be good. And so what Solomon is essentially telling us is you cannot do this on your own. You cannot earn this. That's bubbles. You cannot sit there and come up with a way that by your own effort you can achieve a life of satisfaction. You can't do it. So here's point number one. We'll start with verses 1 through 7. Point number one, rituals without relationship equals rain dance. Rituals without relationship equals rain dance. Here in verses one and two, we find something brand new in the book of Ecclesiastes. Something that hasn't shown up so far. Commentator Bill Baldwin points out that in these two verses, we have the first commands that were given in the book. Let's read verses 1 and 2 again. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So much of what has happened so far in the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon expounding upon observations. 
He's seeing something and then he's commenting on it. He's pointing things out that either he has done or other people have done. This is actually the first time that he actually issues directives. And these are guard your steps, draw near to listen, don't be hasty with your words or or rash with your words, and let your words be few. So these are things that he commands us to do in reference to how we relate to God. So he says, when you go to the house of God, and we have to remember that in this culture, the the Jewish people had to go to a place to visit the presence of God, right? Whether it be the tabernacle or the temple, they were to go to the presence of God, to the tent where God dwelt. So when we take these words, we have to understand that we're not going to a place, To meet with God because scripture tells us that we are the house of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So this stuff is true for us wherever we are. And there's a wrong view that so many of us have that going to a church building and a church service is something that that is entirely unique as far as where the presence of God is as opposed to the rest of the week. We, we view the, the building still the way that they viewed it here. I have to go there because God is there. But we have to understand that where God is, is within every single believer. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we've been brought from death to life, the Holy Spirit inhabits my own heart. And so the house of God is everywhere. And so I have to ever be mindful of these commands. Again, which are, guard your steps, draw near to listen, don't be rash with your words, and let your words be few. One of the mistakes that we make so often in in our prayer, in our worship, in, in in our coming to a worship service, is that we come before God immediately with a list of requests. We come before God and we say, all right, God, this is what I need. This is what I want. And then we say, amen, and we walk away. Far too often, we are not stopping to listen. We're not stopping to ascertain what he has for us. We're not stopping to obey his word or or, or to read what he's already given us. We're just going before him and we're saying, this is what I need. This is what I want. And then that's the end of the conversation. And Solomon tells us that we need to be uh, drawing near to listen. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. You might be asking, what does it mean to be rash with your mouth? What does it mean, practically speaking, to go to the house of God and to to be rash and, and to let our hearts be hasty to utter a word before God? What does that look like for us in a practical sense? Well, here's an example. How often is it that we come and sing songs in church and we recite the words that we read on a screen simply because it's time to sing? But we don't actually mean what we're saying. Sometimes it's important for us to sing these songs to preach the gospel to our own doubt, right? We we sing these songs to to prompt the Spirit to work in us, to invite the Spirit to to accomplish these things in our hearts that, that may not be true yet. But other times we're just singing because we're supposed to. And in doing so, we're we're kind of just being flippant with the words that we speak to God. And not actually meaning what we're saying. How many times have we sang words like we sang earlier today? For those of you that are watching at home, we we sang a song that had the words about surrendering all before the Lord, right? We sing, I surrender all to you, but a lot of times we don't really surrender. Um, If you've ever been on our church website, you may have found in the blog section, there's there's a blog that I wrote uh, several years ago called doggone it oceans because this song that's written by hillsong oceans has so many words that if you if you really mean them are dangerous words to sing spirit lead me where my trust is without borders 
Let me walk upon the waters. And it talks about being in, in an ocean that is overwhelming. Lead me to a place where my faith needs to be stretched. And I wrote this blog in the midst of a time where my faith was being stretched, where I was being taken far beyond what was comfortable, where I was in a place where the waters of the ocean were overwhelming me, and I realized, doggone it, I sang that stupid song a few months ago, and God actually was listening. He actually did what I asked him to do. That was dumb. So, pro tip, don't sing oceans unless you mean it. That's kind of what Solomon is saying here. When you come before God in prayer, when you come before God in worship, don't make promises that you can't keep. And it's, it's so often that we'll bargain with God in our prayers. God, if, if you do this for me, I'll be good for the rest of my life. I won't ask you for anything else. And then we don't follow through. God gives us whatever blessing and we quickly forget what we've prayed. We, we quickly forget the promise that we have made. So he says, don't be rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty to utter, uh, utter a word before God. Let your words be few. He says, draw near to listen. Listen. So one of the things practically that I have started doing, um, I have this spot at work uh, that I call the dungeon. Okay, so I, I work at the pool at Notre Dame. And in our basement, there, there's a basement that's literally um, at, at, at the bottom level, uh, parallel to where the, the water is. So we've got some observation windows into the water. And that's where all of the, the mechanical, um, like the pumps and the filters are. And it's a corridor that's, you know, as long as the pool. And so it's this long, empty, dark room. So I call it the dungeon. Well, the dungeon has become the place where I go every day to have my quiet time. I'm the only one with a key, so I know that I'm not going to be disturbed. I can be there and read my Bible and pray and, and, uh, and do whatever I need to do before the Lord and, and not be disturbed. And so I've got this, like, um, mesh, or not mesh, uh, foam, like, mat that I'll, that I'll kneel on. And in order to follow this, what I've started doing is just, when I kneel down before the Lord, I don't say anything for the first five minutes. And if you've never done this before, it is really hard. <laughs> it's very, very difficult to just be quiet, to focus and to be quiet. Okay, so if I'm kneeling down and I close my eyes, it's about 2.5 seconds before I'm like, and what's supposed to be for dinner tonight? You know, the distractions come so quickly and it's a practiced discipline of just getting on your knees and being silent before God if for no other reason than to just say Lord before I ask you for anything I just want to offer myself to you before I ask you for anything I I just need to be silent before you I just need to kneel in your presence that's what Solomon is asking us to do here and he says That what a fool does is offer an empty sacrifice, not knowing that what they are doing is evil. So what does he mean by a fool offering a sacrifice and it's actually evil? What he's referring to here specifically is the reality that so many times people come before God with an expectation that if I just do this ritual, if I just offer you this thing, I don't actually have to obey what you have commanded me to do in the rest of the Bible. There's a popular prevailing view of God that believes that all he wants from us is to pray the right words in the right order in the right location, almost as if we're speaking some kind of a magic formula. All God wants for us is to just perform the correct rituals. And that is not the case. God's desire from us is true relationship. God's desire for us is obedience born from love. If we want to hear about what God's view is of this empty ritual, take a look for a moment at Isaiah chapter 1. So if you have your, your Bible or, or your, um, your Bible app, 
Go over to Isaiah chapter 1 for just a moment. And look at verses 10 and uh, 11. I'm sorry, 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And so now this is God speaking, okay? This is God's view of empty ritual. He says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So we have to understand here that God is not mad at the ritual. God is the one who commanded this sacrificial system. God is the one who instituted these feasts. God is the one who told the Israelites how to approach him in worship. But he says to them that what they're doing is an abomination because they're doing so with hands full of blood, with a life filled with iniquity, because they're doing evil. They're they're not doing good. They're not seeking justice. They're not correcting oppression. They're living lives outside of the offerings that make their offerings meaningless. And so the point here that that is made in Isaiah and and here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is that God is not interested in empty ritual. He doesn't care how many prayers we pray. He doesn't care how many times we go to church. He doesn't care how many rituals we perform, what offerings we sacrifice. If your life does not match your offering, your offering is rejected. How many people believe that they can just live however they want, but as long as they periodically clock in, perform a ritual, pray a prayer, God is pleased. That is a popular, prevailing view of God in our society. All God wants is a ritual. All God wants is a prayer. All God wants is for me to speak the magic formula, and somehow from heaven he's like, oh, okay, we're good now. That doesn't make any sense. God's saying, I don't want your empty sacrifice. Picture it like, like a marriage relationship, and, and there's some married couples here, married couples who are watching Picture it like this. Let's say you have this marriage relationship, right? And you're the husband and and you have other girlfriends, right? You have these other girlfriends on the side that you spend time with throughout the week. And your wife knows. You're not hiding it from your wife that you have other girlfriends. But you make sure that she knows that she's your favorite. And you make sure that she's the one that you're coming home to Every single night. And, and every so often, once a week, once every couple of weeks, you bring her some gift. Whether it be flowers, chocolates, diamonds, something. Something to show her that you love her. You, you bring her something that, that, that lets her know that she's special. And you, and you say to her, you know what, I, I just want to check in with you. I just want to make sure that you're doing okay. Do you think there is any wife out there who's going to be like, oh, thank you for these flowers. We're good. We're, we're totally good. And you can go on with, with your carousing. Absolutely not. Okay? No wife is going to be okay with that. She will kick you out on the curb and throw all your stuff there too. Why do we expect it's any different with God? 
that we can go and live however we want to live, do whatever we want to do, not follow his commands in scripture at all, not be faithful in any way, shape, or form, but every so often we come into church, we clock in, we perform a ritual, we pray a prayer, we sing a song, and we expect that God is in heaven being like, hey, you know what? We're good. Absolutely not. That's why God says in Isaiah, I hate your sacrifices. It's empty to me. It's an abomination. You coming before me with hands filled with blood and iniquity drives me crazy. So Solomon says here that if we're going to say things to God, we, we need to mean what we say. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. If you're going to say to God, I surrender all, you'd better surrender all. If you say to God, I'm going to worship you, you should probably worship. If you say to God, this is what I want to offer you, you need to offer it to God. And what God expects from us is faithfulness. Now, we understand that we're sinful, right? We understand that we're, per- we're imperfect. We're going to make mistakes. But the pattern of our life needs to be one of commitment and promise. That we're going to give ourselves to the Lord. So, Solomon tells us that rituals without relationship is a rain dance. It's a rain dance. It's coming before God and doing something that we think is going to make everything okay. But it's not. Second, riches without righteousness is also a rain dance. Riches without righteousness is a rain dance. So here in the next section, perhaps your, your Bible labels it like mine, the vanity of wealth and honor. And he starts out by talking about oppression. And, and he says, if you see oppression, if you see injustice, don't be amazed. Okay, don't be surprised. Because the person who's oppressing the ones under them have other people above them who are oppressing them too. And and they're still higher above them who are sending that oppression downward. It's a trickle-down effect. And everyone is taking advantage of whomever they can. Everyone who has any measure of power is exercising it in order to exact more gain from the people around us. And we we talked a couple of weeks before in a, a previous sermon about using people versus Loving people. That as I teach my children, people are more important than things. But here Solomon points out the the reality that so many times we make things more important than people. And so he points out very clearly in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? A very wise theologian once commenting on verse 11 said, Mo money, mo problems. That's what Solomon is pointing us to, that money, wealth for us so often is a source of security. And I said at the beginning that that money is such an easy thing to substitute for God because we try to find the same things in God that we try to find in money. There's safety, there's security, there's this illusion that if we just have enough, we'll be all right. If we just accrue enough, we can purchase for ourselves whatever we need to be happy. And we all know that money can't buy happiness But money can buy a bunch of stuff, and stuff makes us happy. But Solomon says that he who loves money won't be satisfied with money. And he calls this vanity, bubbles. He says if this is what you're chasing after, it is going to be bubbles that are floating away, and you're always going to be chasing after them. You're always going to be running toward them, and no matter how hard you try, you're never going to be able to grab onto it. 
Because money offers us a false promise. No matter how much time and effort we put into accruing it, it's gone in a moment. It's also not coming with us when we die. He he points out this situation uh, beginning in verse 13 where we have this guy who's very, very wealthy but then loses it all. He says, there's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? So we have this this guy who has accrued all this wealth. And it's interesting to me that Solomon says that these riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. That's not exactly something that Americans would identify with, right? We would look at that and go, okay, so this guy had a bunch of money to his hurt? We would look at that and go, no, 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 that's to his gain, (laughs) That is to his good. He's got all that he could possibly need. He's got a big mansion and it's filled with stuff and it's filled with everything that he could possibly want. How is that to his hurt? Well, Solomon tells us that he's, he's put all this effort into accruing this stuff and somehow he loses it all. I was reading one time a, um, an article that was highlighting previous winners of the lottery. And how many of them, and I forget what the exact number was. It was something like 89%. It was in the 80s or 90s. The number of people that after they win the lottery are back to being bankrupt within two years. And the number of people who win the lottery and then either commit suicide or fall into deep depression. Because the hope that we have is, if I just get enough stuff, I'm going to be happy. And then we get the stuff, and then we realize, oh, I'm not happy. This, this doesn't give me what I thought that it would give me. And so, in verse 17, he says, All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. The richest dude with everything that he could possibly want. Eating in darkness and vexation and sickness and anger. He is telling us very clearly, just like he did in chapter 2, about himself. Wealth will not make you happy. Wealth will not give you security. No matter what effort you put into gaining stuff for yourself, it will not give you what you think it will give you. And even if you never lose it, even if you spend your entire life with it, he makes it very clear, here's the thing, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. You've all heard the phrase, there's no such thing as a hearse with a U-Haul attached, right? Because you can't take the stuff with you when you die. So if all that there is under the sun is accruing for ourselves, at some point, whether while you're alive or when you die, the stuff goes away. And it's bubbles, bubbles, nothing but bubbles. So he connects these two things, the empty ritual of religion and the hoarding of wealth, because both of these things are based on what can I do in order to gain for myself peace? What can I do in order to gain for myself satisfaction and security and safety? How can I achieve this? How can I pull myself up by my own bootstraps and get the life that I want? Is it in pleasing God? Okay, what do I have to do to please God? Is is it in having security in this world? Okay, what do I have to accrue in order to gain these things for myself? And Solomon tells us very clearly that it's a rain dance. 
It's jumping around and dancing and making a lot of noise and spitting water in the air and and chanting things over and over and over, but accomplishing absolutely nothing. And no matter what we do in our own effort, no matter how hard we try, we don't accomplish what we want to accomplish. And we spend our days eating in darkness and vexation and sickness and anger. Have you ever noticed that the real problems in life don't go away if you throw money at them? (laughs) No matter what you gain, your money can't protect you from death. No matter what you gain, your money can't protect you from getting sick. COVID affects the rich just as much as it does the poor. So Solomon tells us, don't do these rain dances. Don't make it about your own effort. Don't come before God with an attitude that you can earn his favor. And don't come before man with an attitude that you can earn the life that man is supposed to have. So where does that leave us? Verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So the final point is this. Receiving and rejoicing equals true religion. Receiving and rejoicing equals true religion. I want to make it very clear that Solomon points out in these verses that wealth isn't bad. Money isn't bad. Possessions isn't bad. Even power. Also to everyone whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. He doesn't say, ah, you have too much. He doesn't say, ah, you have power, make sure you don't have any power. He says that the right view is to receive these as gifts from God and to rejoice in the fact that they are gifts from God. Over and over, he's repeated this exact same formula. To eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil that God has given him under the sun. He said this earlier in chapter 3. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil because this is God's gift to man. Chapter 3 verse 22. So I saw there is nothing better than man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot. Over and over, he says that this is what we should do. Chapter 2, verse 24, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment from his toil. This also is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? Over and over and over, same thing. He says, eat and drink and find enjoyment in your lot. Whatever it is, in your toil, in your wealth, in your position, in your power, or your lack thereof, you can sleep easy at night when you have the gifts that God has given you. That's why he says earlier in in chapter 5, verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why? Because he's relying on those things to make him happy. But this laborer who has nothing can get a full night's sleep and enjoy all that God has given him. Because this person understands it's not about my effort. It's not about what I do. 
It's not about what I gain. It's not about what I accomplish. It's not about what I have. It's not about what I accrue. It's about what I've received as a gift from God. When I've received whatever he has given me as a gift, then I can enjoy whatever he has given me. Whether I'm living paycheck to paycheck or I'm living in the Hamptons, God has given me this lot in life and I enjoy him. I eat and drink and I'm satisfied. It's interesting that the person that he, that he talks about is someone who has wealth and possession and power, but this person isn't thinking about his wealth and position and power. Verse 20, he says, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. How many of us are occupied with the joy in our heart? Most of us are occupied with what I need or what I want or what I think I need or want. Most of us are occupied with the to-do list. Most of us are occupied with what we don't have, what we think will make us happy. He says that this person doesn't much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. God, I want to live that kind of life where I spend every day occupied with the joy in my heart for whatever God has given me. Whatever I have is exactly what I need and I can rejoice in my toil because my joy is in the giver, not in the gift. We have to lay down this idea that we can earn our satisfaction. We have to lay down this idea that we can earn our peace, that we can achieve our satisfaction. We must find enjoyment in the few days that God has given us in him, in his gifts. And then we'll stop doing rain dances. We'll stop spending our time doing all of this effort and and, and dancing ourselves silly and accomplishing nothing we'll actually be able to sit down at the table and break bread and drink our wine and look at the people that God has placed around that table, socially distanced, of course, with the joy in our hearts that he occupies us with. So Solomon is deconstructing for us self-effort. Are you in any way trying to find yourself in what you are doing? Are you someone who is trying to find satisfaction in achieving something? In, in doing a ritual, in accruing stuff, in, in whatever it is, are you trying to earn your own satisfaction in life? Tonight, Solomon calls you to lay that down before God and accept the free gift of salvation. Join me in prayer as we close.